Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person who who seeks um, the sacred food system, the sacred food system. And we have quite a show planned today. Um, Later um, in the show, we're going to be joined by longtime food activist Jim Embry, and he's traveling the country promoting the joy and justice uh, food system. So we're looking forward to talking to him. But first is J.D. Hansen. He's with the Center for Food Safety. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio, J.D. That's nice to be with you. I'm, I'm glad you're covering this issue. Yeah, so I reached out because the Center for Food Safety partnered with the Consumer uh, Union and the Environmental Defense Fund to uh, host a webinar recently on lab-grown meat. And people can tune in to your website and, and hear that entire hour-long webinar. But before we get into those details, um, tell us a little bit about the Center for Food Safety. The Center for Food Safety was uh, formed... Uh, 25 years ago, uh, primarily to address new kinds of technology in food. And at the time, that meant uh, genetically engineered uh, foods, but it uh, now means uh, nanotechnology in food and uh, uh, cell-based meat culture uh, and, uh, and other Uh, kinds of synthetic biology now. And what's your personal background? You've been with them for a long time, but what's your personal background? Well, I, uh, uh, as an undergraduate, studied uh, biology and ecology, and in graduate school uh, studied uh, biogeography, basically Mm. the, the, you know, how how systems uh, uh, work. And um, first came to Washington, D.C. to um, um, uh, work for the fishery service. And um, then I uh, uh, ended up uh, going to work for a time for the United Methodist Church and started their climate justice program and their genetic engineering program. Wow. And you've been with the Center for Food Safety for over 18 years, and you share, you co-chair the nanotechnology group. So, so let's, uh, what is lab-grown meat? When people well, use that phrase, what does it mean? Um, for the most part, what it means is um, some folks have uh, uh, biopsied, um, meat out of animals. That means they uh, take a big hollow hollow needle and stick it into the animal they want to uh, make meat from. And then um, most of the companies uh, uh, use what's uh, called uh, calf fetal serum. These are are calves that are slaughtered uh, mostly accidentally in the uh, meat production process and then their um, blood is used to uh, culture cells and um, 
to to be fair to the companies that are doing this, uh, uh, the major ones say that they're going to get away from fetal serum and grow these cells in something else, but they're not exactly telling us what that something else is. Well, and I mean, this is... It's interesting, and it's also really scary to me. And now, before I had you on, I, I, I spoke to a very earnest, very scientifically bent person, and she said to me, don't say anything bad about lab-grown meat. Lab-grown meat is going to end factory farming. It's going to help with climate admissions, um, and um, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to provide protein for people who really need protein. And I, 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 so I want to keep an open mind as to what this is. But one of the things I also think is that we need to be using the precautionary principle and really understanding what this, this is. And I would love to see this type of new technology operate under a human system of, um, of, uh, of rules and regulation and also a human system of, um, of love, maybe, um, and, and instead, of a, uh, instead of a system of extraction? Well, I mean, the first thing to, to remind everybody is um, we don't have to eat meat to live. Uh, that if you're, that if you want to, uh, address climate change, one of the, a, a better way than having that after that after that after that of really energy intensive, uh, growth process, the cell based culture is going to be, um, eat vegetables. They grow well, and uh, and they uh, um, and they suck up a lot of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Right, uh, lentils, so, uh, more lentils, yeah. more legumes. Eating those and eating them from healthy soil. And um, so, uh, and but the, some people are saying that this might be a multi-billion-dollar industry shortly. Uh, are there any lab-grown meats? There's none on the market yet, though, right? There is a. Um, Sort of a chicken McNugget, not not using the McDonald's brand, but a, a chicken nugget is on, that is made in part from cultured chicken cells is on the market in Singapore. Uh, it's mostly plant-based filler with some chicken flavoring, really, when it gets right down to it. So how can people learn more about lab-grown meat? Well, um, one, you can go to our website, uh, centerforfoodsafety.org. Um, we're going to be putting more things on, uh, in, you know, as we um, raise questions to the uh, Center for Food Safety, excuse me, the Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition that's not us. We're not questioning ourselves um, at the um, at the Food and Drug Administration and the uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture. They are uh, now considering uh, some regulations and how to label these products. So. Um there's so much I want to say on this, but I mean, one of the things that I wonder about is um, intellectual property. I mean, I don't, 
a lot of the company, uh, uh, I think that life, that no idea should be able to be, uh, what, are, what are some of the issues around intellectual property and lab-grown meat? Well, the, the big issue is, it, is that in, in the U.S., we allow to claim as confidential business information the environmental effects of the product and the health effects of the product. And when I get documents from federal agencies, they're often just all whited out or all blacked out. They, they, they vary which, which way they do it. Um, and, you know, we, we should do what the Europeans do. Um, and, um, let, um, require companies to disclose totally how they're doing something with respect to the environmental and health effects. And I actually think somehow, and I'm not an expert on this, but somehow we need to be maybe even thinking about abolishing intellectual property. You can't really own ideas. They're all interconnected. We've all had, we've had changes and, 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 and I think actually this, the whole rules around intellectual property, um, Pro- prohibit um, uh, they, they interfere with our ability to um, our, our ability to respond to our environment. Um, but the other thing I wanted to ask right now is, um, what kind of lessons should we have learned from glyphosate? I mean, we know that when it was first uh, pronounced, it was supposed to reduce chemical use, but it increased chemical use. It's been so damaging to monarchs. What type of lessons do you think you you wish we would have learned from that technology use? Well, one of the things we we should learn from it is the the Environmental Protection Agency had data from the companies that was that was forthright about the effects and approved it anyway. Um, it just you know, and it wasn't until our lawyers and other lawyers were representing victims of glyphosate in court cases that they were able to get from the Environmental Protection Agency what should have been public from the beginning, which was the uh, the effects of these chemicals on damaging the environment and the effects of, of, of glyphosate on causing cancer. And like one of the effects is that it hurts earthworms. After several weeks, our earthworms are reduced by half in the soil. And so having mm-hmm. healthy, vital soil is the key to having a healthy, vital food system. And yet we've had a chemical-dependent industrial food system where our soil is deeply damaged. Yes. Well, um, some some years ago, I was on a focus group for Monsanto, Um Right after, right after I was uh, at the funeral of one of my uncles, who died of of, of cancer, and uh, I, I told Monsanto then, um, and this is 1986, so it was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I told Monsanto, "I'm not your problem. Your problem is at my uncle's funeral." 400 of your customers thought you had killed him. And yet the stuff is still sitting there on the shelves. You walk into big box stores, it's just sitting there. A billion pounds of pesticides are being used right now, despite all the evidence we, we know. 
Well, and you know, and in neighborhood after neighborhood, it's it's being sprayed, you know, on on the cracks and sidewalks just just to kill the weeds that are coming up. You know, I mean, it's crazy. It is crazy. It's totally crazy. Let's say that. And I mean, there's some news on the genetically engineered. And, and so, so now, now, despite not, we're not learning the lessons. We're actually moving on to genetically engineering other life forms, like uh, animals yep. and plants. So, tell us what's going on in that area. Well, um, the um, for for about twenty years, the. Uh, the, the FDA uh, has been uh, regulating uh, genetically engineered uh, animals, mostly for um, research purposes. And then about uh, more, more than 15 years ago, they started uh, approving the uh, genetically engineered salmon that they approved about five years ago, and we had to take them to court because it did such a poor job of of um, the um, environmental review that the Ninth Circuit Court in San Francisco ordered them to them being the FDA to um, completely redo their uh, endangered species assessment on the fish and their um, basic environmental assessment. Uh, unfortunately, the, the court did not order uh, the product off the market. But fortunately, the companies had such a huge problem in producing its its fish that almost none of it is being sold. And that's, I mean, that's because so, they're, they're releasing genetically engineered mosquitoes now in Florida. Uh, they are, and we've been we've been working to, well, and they want to do it in California. And uh, at least the California Department of uh, Pesticide Review uh, is taking a more deliberate approach than the um, than the Florida Department of Agriculture, which regulates it in Florida. So I'm just going to say this out because, I mean, it, it can feel sort of overwhelming because I, I really wish our species would slow down and focus on respecting other lives, not just trying to figure out how to make money from it. And um, so um, tell us a little bit more about what you see in the future and how people can learn more about these issues. Well, in the, in the future, I do think there will unfortunately be some uh, kind of cell-based uh, meat and, and 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 even more likely seafood uh, on the market. Um, uh, the reason I say more likely seafood on the market is that uh, it's easier to grow some of the uh, uh, cold-blooded species than it is warm-blooded species. Um, what what we're going to be pushing is to make sure that the, that it's not genetically engineered um, to keep growing, and uh, so uh, the other thing that is, that's likely is that uh, we will see some kinds of of uh, of cattle and and pigs that are genetically engineered. Um, on the market, uh, ironically, I don't, 
I don't think we're going to see uh, genetically engineered chickens on the market. They're so inbred, it's it's hard to. It, Hmm. Well, it's, it's, it's complicated. We'll be paying attention. J.D. Hansen from the Center for Food Safety, and that's at the thecenterforfoodsafety.org. Um, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll be talking with uh, to Jim Embry. Um, you're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and joining us now is Jim Embry. He is traveling the country preaching about a joyful, joyful food system. That's very different than the GE food system we were just hearing about in the last segment. But his roots run really deep. He helped stop, uh, start a co-op 50 years ago. He founded Sustainable Communities Network. He's featured in the book We Are Each Other's Harvest, celebrating African-American farmers, land, and legacy. And he's also with uh, a Slow Food. So welcome to Food Freedom Radio, Jim. Oh, I'm just blessed to be here on the phone with you all and all of our listeners. It's just an honor and a blessing to be in the Twin Cities, visiting friends, uh, old friends, new friends, and always love speaking with the media. Yeah. So, um, I'm, again, just, uh, just welcome all the folks who are listening in, and we, and, and we know we're going to share, we hope, a, a few gems, being G-E-M and J-I-M, uh, Jim's with folks who are listening in. <laughs> Jim, G-I-M. Uh, um, well, yes. joy, 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 the power of joy and justice. I just, um, I just love it. I love the, I, I love the, the phrase. So tell me about your journey that you're doing here. Okay. A- absolutely. Well, you know, as you know, um, I'm on this, what I call, uh, this joy and justice journey in June. <laughs> uh, I left home, uh, May 28th. And the plan is to be back home actually around July 3rd, so about a month. Uh, and I have been, well, I will, I will have covered uh, in this you know, month journey of about 25 cities, uh, 15 states, uh, oh, about 12 or 15 slow food chapters, uh, eight or nine food co-ops. I'm in a co-op now here. Uh, thankful for the Seward Co-op here, allowing me to use their office space. Oh, about and also about 20 members of my family, you know, three children, in-laws, cousins, niece and nephew, uh, and a bunch of food justice uh, organizations has all been part of this um, uh, month-long journey. And uh, first of all, I come out of a family culture that was committed to this theme of joy and justice. So the idea of going on this month-long tour isn't anything that's really new for me. Uh, again, I come from a family who uh, are what I call agrarian intellectual activists. So, kind of tr- uh-huh. so let's go to like your great-grandfather. Your great-grandfather yeah, um, yeah. fought in the Civil War. So tell us about him. Well, well, and, you know, actually we had three. Okay. Okay. We had, we had three great-granddads fought in the Civil War. Two of them were brothers. Okay. Uh, and two on my mom's side, and one on my dad's side. Uh, the brothers were uh, Jackson and George Ballou, and then uh, their friend um, who was on, my, on my dad's side was Louis Gilbert, who had three. And, of course, they, they were uh, in an enslaved condition, and when the call went out uh, in 1864, maybe a few months before that, when Lincoln 
finally agreed with um, Frederick Douglass to allow uh, African American men and women uh, to fight. Then, as 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 we know, some 180,000 plus black men and women uh, enlisted. Some ran very joyfully, okay, to fight because they knew that fighting meant the freedom, the potential freedom of themselves, their wives, their children, their moms, their pops, their children, and so forth. So, um, but uh, uh, one of my uh, Jackson Ballou died in the Civil War, early in the war, uh, and his brother and Lewis were in the same regiment, which is the 114th Regiment, and they left Kentucky. Out of Kentucky, some 28,000. Uh, black men and women enrolled in the uh, Union Army. Now, I say women because, of course, Harriet Tubman uh, was a well-noted by then uh, freedom fighter, you know, uh, got folks freed, you know, going back and forth. But she was also regarded as like a spy uh, for the Union Army because she knew the terrain so well. Some of the black women wanted to fight, and they disguised themselves as men. And there are stories about that. It's such uh, a fasc- anyway, fascinating so, so, history. And I know one of the yeah, things, is. there's so much I want to cover, but one of the things you were yeah, saying at ahead. the event I was at is that Harriet Tubman had an intimate knowledge of the soil and the plants and the stars. Yes, and yes, that yes, connection, yes, exactly. that sacred connection with the land, yes, yes, which is the yes, source yes. of joy, perhaps. Oh, 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 most certainly. Most certainly. I mean, if you're eating and finding water, you're joyful, Okay. I mean, when you have, you know, if you have, a, if you have, a, if you birth a child, and and they come out, and they're and they're eating either you know breast milk from the mom or whatever, what, they might be crying, and you know, okay, well, hey, get them babies, put them to the breast, and they'll be joyful, okay. So we, so so food has been that sense of not only sustenance and nourish, but also joy, since you know our evolution as a species, and of course, you know, since birth, but uh, but yes. So, so again, so uh, uh, two of the grandfathers that was um, uh, George Ballou and Louis Gilbert were in the 114th Regiment, and then they were the ones who also went to Virginia that combated with uh, General Lee and his army, were able to surround him, and then forced his surrender. And then the two same great-granddads were there when Lee surrendered at Appomattox Courthouse. Then they were also shipped uh, the very next couple of weeks or so uh, to Texas, Galveston, Texas, to protect the border, but more importantly, to try to defeat the last remaining Confederate armies that were in Texas. And so they were there a month before General Granger came in. And I maintained that, yes, let's, let's recognize General Granger when talking about Juneteenth, but let's also lift up these some 10,000, uh, you know, uh, black troops that came in there a month before Granger came in that that gave the city, you know, a new sense of peace. So again, at that uh, Juneteenth, talk about the joy of folks, uh, our folk who were enslaved, and you're seeing troops come in and, 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 and say, look here, you all are free. I mean, tremendous joy, jubilation uh, at that, what we tend to call Emancipation Day. So again, so, so, so those great-granddads carried with them that sense of joy and sense of responsibility fighting in the war that came back home to where I live now. And and that culture, I call it the agrarian intellectual activist, because uh, uh, one of the sons of those great-grandfathers wound up going to what's called Berea College in Kentucky in 1879. That's why I say we've also been intellectuals for all these years. And then that great-grandfather, uh, name was Don Carlos Blue, 
was good friends with the likes of Ida B. Wells, Mary Church Terrell, uh, W.B. Du Bois, and George Washington Carver. And they invited, he was part of this black farm cooperative, uh, black business league, and, you know, of course, you know, churches and schools, he taught schools. And so they were all, so, so they brought them in, uh, in the 19, uh, 1915, 1919, what was called the, uh, back then it was called the Colored Chautauqua. And, uh, so that was, that those kind of connections, uh, again, with our, or our folks and the folks like Du Bois, Carver, and, and Ida B. Wells. So the essay you mentioned, and what I call it the Harvest Book, fully titled, We Are Each Other's Harvest, uh, the essay that I wrote in that, uh, book kind of describes that kind of, uh, uh family history. I just feel, again, very blessed. And thank you for allowing me on on this wonderful radio uh, show uh, to be to talk about my family. Well, we're grateful. My, my being here today is because of those folk who fought, died, survived. That's why I'm here today. And can we learn joy from those struggles? Well, absolutely, absolutely, we can learn it in, in a whole variety of ways. Again, you know, so. So this 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 campaign of this this uh, month long joy and justice journey, uh, in many ways comes from the slow food uh, <laughs> slogan that we developed about four or five years ago when uh, we were um, writing what we call our Equity, Inclusion, and Justice Manifesto, and uh, I was probably the primary author of that document, and we were wanting uh, a way to get that manifesto out to all of our local chapters. In a big campaign, so we thought, "Wow, let's create a campaign to roll out the manifesto, but we'll call it Joy and Justice." So, oftentimes, people think that when you're in the struggle, when you're in the movement, when you're protesting, when you're trying to make change, it's not joyful. But for me, if it's not joyful being part of that, then I couldn't do it for the last sixty years. You know, I began as a 10-year-old as a member of what was called the Congress of Racial Equality Corps. My mother was the local chapter president. So uh, for her, she thought it was, it, it, was, it, it was normal to have her two sons. I was 10. My brother was 13 as part of Corps, And we were on picket lines and weighed-ins and being cursed out and spit on and whatever else uh, when I was 10 years old. But even within those experiences, you know, we would sing songs. You know, all the various kind of spirituals, you know, wade in the water, go down Moses, uh, we shall overcome. And those kind of songs would lift up our spirit, okay, and, and, and would create this sense of, of, of joy, this sense of, of, of collective courage uh, that, that our friend Jessica Nimhard writes about uh, in her book about, uh, you know, cooperatives. So those songs, uh, prayers, um, and just... The, the camaraderie of working together and, and struggling together are elements of joy. And if you if you if you if you're out there in the movement and you happen to get you know a change, you happen to get a law passed, you happen to break down the walls of Jim Crow and black codes, or like in Galveston, if you happen to be able to come in and say as a black soldier and tell your members of your uh, cultural family, then look here. Y'all be free. Y'all be free. I mean, it's joy even when you speak the words and when you are fighting for those kinds of freedoms. There's a joy in that, and it's also a joy in receiving those words 
that yes, we've been enslaved for almost 300 years, but now we've had this thing called emancipation, this thing called freedom. Well, there's a whole joy wrapped up in all of that. Absolutely. So um, I want to. Uh, this this joy is also connected to Earth and having a sacred relationship with soil, rocks, plants, with reality. Well, uh, again, if we understand the life on the Earth, for all of life, uh, all, all Earth beings, you know, Earth has given birth to all that is. Okay, has given birth to all that is. So even within this, that manifestation of giving birth, what we call evolving, you know, out of, you know, this earth of water and rocks and one-celled uh, organelles and multi-celled and, and, and aquatic life and plant life and rep- reptiles and mammals. So there's a whole joy within this whole 4.5 billion years of, of, of Earth evolution. Okay, that's a source of joy, just in terms of how the life and the great diversity. So, since we come, since we come from the earth, okay, we're made from the soil, the compost, the dirt. People call it. We're made from the water. We're made from the rocks. You know, we're made from the air. We're made from the sunshine. So, yes, I mean that's the source of life, which is the source of joy, just in and of itself, just by itself. And as we spoke last night when we were over at the Frogtown Farm. Uh, we're talking about that because we're made from the dirt and the compost uh, and all that's in the soil, we're made from the water, then when we touch it, we're touching what we're made from. And when we do that, then, uh, you know, human beings have for, again, thousands and millions of years have, have, have done that farming, done that uh, touching the soil, uh, being in the water. You know, I'm a scuba diver, okay, and we all spend nine months in water. So we all we all have this this sacred connection with water, and soil and air. So we're from from out in the water scuba diving. I feel peaceful. I feel joyful because I'm literally in the womb of the mother, meaning earth. I'm in the womb from which life evolved. So for me, that's a joyful experience. And uh, when I'm in the garden, uh, it's joyful. And I've had you know, like you maybe I've had experiences pretty much my whole life of seeing the joy when you're out there in, in, in the garden and you're working and you're planting things. You take a seed and you put it in the soil and then days go by and the seed sprouts. And you say, wow, look what I did. Look at that seed. And, it, and, it's, and then when, you, when fruit comes along, you say, wow, it's gone from a tiny seed to this plant. I was just earlier over here at, at one of the uh, gardens for the uh, kids and they were showing me some tomatoes. So there's a joy in watching the plant grow, knowing you put it in the ground. There's also a joy when you when the tomato gets ripe, that watermelon gets ripe, and you get to eat it and savor it and taste it. I mean, that's yeah. a joyful experience. And there's so much power in, the in that joy. Of it, yeah. Let alone in, in, in the growing and all that. So, so I'm, in, in my view, then the joy around the idea of, of, of garden connection, farming, and whatever extends from from the whole the whole system ought to be joyful. The so planting, oh, the whole system ought to be yeah. joyful. On that note, Jim, we're going to take a little break. We're going to come right back and we're going to yep, talk. Right when we all come right. back, we're going to talk about all the hats you are wearing on this journey and uh, everything from Ujamaa right. Farm Seeds to uh, Slow Food. So you're listening to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Headland, And joining us uh, from Seward Co-op is Jim Embry. Thanks so much. 
Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. We're talking with Jim Embry, who is on a, uh, a worldwide, uh, is on a national tour um, about just joy and justice, um, calling us from the Seward Co-op. And you actually helped start a co-op 50 years ago. You want to talk about that a bit, Jim? Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Uh, back in 1972, I joined in with about, oh, 15 other other folk or other families, and then we decided, for a variety of reasons, uh, to form a buying club, and we named it Good Foods. Uh, and uh, that was 50 years ago. And uh, for, for me personally, part of the uh, sense of purpose and, and, and willingness to join a co-op was at that time, uh, my wife and I had, we had our, our, our first child in 1971. And all of our kids, you know, were, were, were breastfed. But part of our concern was getting access to just better quality food back in 1971. And we recognized in the traditional grocery stores, it wasn't quite that available like how we wanted it. So we thought, wow, then that's joining with these other folk. And many of us were, were uh, folks who were either students. So you helped start the co-op because you wanted healthy food. But is there also a connection between joy and cooperation, Jim? Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It sure is. Let me mention, however, real quickly, again, about family. I come from a family of folk who, after the Civil War, uh, again, were part of the, Some of them were teachers. All of them were farmers. And they formed, even back post the Civil War, these uh, black farmer cooperatives and they black teacher associations, which are also cooperatives. So I come from a long, famous tradition of being involved in all different forms of cooperatives. So when we, we met and wanted to work on this food co-op, that was natural for me to have the tendency, that's this sense of willingness to join in with other folk. While other friends of mine didn't have that tradition and couldn't figure out why this you know, why is this black guy, you know, with big old afro and, and whatever, uh, joining in here with these other white hippies? But we did that. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so, so as I was saying last night uh, around the idea of cooperative, I mean, again, around my family, uh, we made quilts together, for example. We, we, we did barn raising. Uh, we, had, we did all kinds of things around this rural black community that were about solidarity economy, mutual aid, uh, of all forms, are what we call cooperatives. And there was tremendous joy. <clears throat> the house I live in now, the living room, uh, you know, the aunts, the, uh, I mean, the aunts, the grandmamas, and, and the women in the family would sit around with these rags, uh, we call them rags, and make quilts. And they would laugh and talk, you know, and giggle and make these beautiful quilts. That was a cooperative. Yeah. Right? So, yes, so, so in my view, a cooperative is simply a means uh, for humans to imitate and mimic nature, to imitate how the earth works. The earth works through cooperation, reciprocity. All these different kind of systems are in place uh, from the system of pollination uh, of plants and animals and the sun and all kind of things, you know, coming together to produce these flowering trees and plants. Uh, that's a whole system that we call cooperative. A cooperative, the Underground Railroad, okay, of folks with these different Underground Railroad sites and people like Nerit Tubman, other folks, leading folks to freedom, that was a system of cooperatives. And there was tremendous joy 
when you were able to to find your way and, and escape and find these you know these safe houses uh, that were these houses systems of people cooperating to, and was tremendous joy in that. So, so yes, yeah, I think that that's part. Of, I think humans, you know, are social beings, and, and, and we have our most points of happiness and joy when we're cooperating together. And you're also featured in the book, We Are Each Other's Harvest, and it's a uh, collection of different voices. And in the 1920s, there was over a million uh, black farmers, and today there, there's less than 50,000. Tell us a little bit about that book cause you're, um, and, 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 and why you think that the cover should be as iconic as Rosie the Riveter. Uh, most certainly, <clears throat> yes. This book, again, was a book that was uh, uh, written and, and even I mean, edited and invited uh, people like myself to write an essay by Natalie Bazile, different lives in out in San Francisco and you know her first book uh, was called uh, Queen Sugar she spent 10 years writing that book about her family traditions back in Louisiana uh, as uh, raising sugarcane and then she couldn't find a publisher and she was out there one day at a black women's uh, writers uh, workshop reading uh, from their various works and some uh, lady who works with Oprah Winfrey heard her read and said wow this book is fantastic I think uh, Oprah might be interested, okay, and, 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 and listen to, to your book. And Natalie said, yeah, everybody know Oprah. Matter of fact, she's a friend of mine, too, okay? She didn't quite believe her. And she said, no, 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 here's my card, okay? Uh, let's, let me get back to the office, and we'll give, a, we'll give you a call and have a meeting in a couple of weeks, and you can come in. Well, the rest is history. She went in and read for Oprah. Oprah loved it. And as you know, then uh, Oprah Winfrey and Ava DuVernay bought the rights to that book, and it, made, it came, became a TV series. So her book went platinum, and then HarperCollins a couple of years ago uh, approached Natalie and said, hey, your first book was fantastic. We want to give you a contract to do another book. And, and, and they suggested that maybe the topic might be uh, more, uh, you know, uh, 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 uh. anyway, it was a book that would be about southern black farmers was the initial kind of theme. And as she went around and thought about it and talked to people, she opened it up uh, where it's more about uh, uh, nationally uh, black and brown farmers. So uh, I got invited uh, three years ago uh, due to some uh, – we had a mutual friend named Melanie Edwards who I had met at the Black Urban Growers uh, Conference uh, in Raleigh-Durham uh, that fall, fall. And then that, Mally said, Melanie said to Natalie, oh, I know a guy – I met a crazy-ass guy, Jim Embry, you know, excuse me, uh, at a conference, and he has a great story about his, 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 his uh, great-grandfather and George Washington Carver and boys and Ida B. Wells that ought to be in the book. So I got invited uh, to write an essay, and uh, much of the book, now that God kind of goes around the country and, like, interviews people uh, uh, who are farmers all around the country, and beautiful pictures in the book are pictures and poems and just wonderful uh, descriptions of, 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 of families who have endured and survived. And it kind of tells their uh, own family legacy and their love of the land and love of family and love of growing things. And the title of the book, uh, again, as we know, is called We Are Each Other's Harvest, which is actually a short phrase out of a poem by Gwendolyn Brooks, who I knew uh, from going to Chicago often uh, back in the 70s, a dear friend. And then Gwendolyn Brooks was writing that poem 
about her love and her friendship with Paul Robeson. So that title has that kind of, of, of significance and legacy. Oh, yeah, Jim Emery, it's, it's so important. We have, we're like down to our last three minutes. I just want to make sure that we tease out some of the other stuff you're active in, like slow yeah, food, yeah, slow food, and also, uh, uh, am I saying it right, uh, the Ujami uh, Farm Ujama, Seeds. Ujama. Ujama, yeah, Ujama sure, Seeds. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. just briefly yeah, mention yeah, so, how that's all connected. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So on my journey, again, the theme, Join Justice, came out of the slow food um, uh, theme uh, from writing our Equity Inclusion uh, Manifesto. And I've been involved in slow food as an organization since 2008. I've been blessed to have gone to, to Italy uh, for the Terra Madre gathering six times. Hope to go again this year, this international uh, gathering of folk from all over the, the world, every country in the world. Uh, but I, I always say that But I've been living the slow food life and philosophy my whole life. So uh, out of the slow food is, is the theme of, of my month-long journey. But also I'm, I'm on the journey wearing different hats, and one of them is the hat of the Ujama Seeds. We formed about a year ago as a BIPOC, meaning black, indigenous, people of color, uh, BIPOC-led seed cooperative initiative. And our theme is to both raise seeds and then provide seeds in a catalog that we call are culturally relevant. That might mean seeds that are of the African diaspora or of the Asian diaspora or of the indigenous diaspora, those kind of seeds. Seeds that we brought here with us from the, from the African continent, maybe in enslaved condition. The women would, would, would maybe hide uh, bene sesame seeds in their hair or okra and things like that. So they would uh, purposely carry seeds with them where they were taken at the thought, Wherever we're going, I want to be able to, 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 to grow food. So, so Ajama Seeds, again, formed a year ago. We uh, have a catalog of some several hundred right now seed varieties, many of them are the heirloom varieties. And, again, folks can go to our website, ujamaseeds.org, uh, and place an order. And uh, so, I've been, so I left home with 100 varieties of seeds, five uh, of each, left home with 500 packages of seeds, and it's been my blessed responsibility and experience to take this travel in 25 cities and just give seeds away so folks know about Ujama Seeds. And we're also, like, we, we were greatly helped. Jim, Jim, unfortunately, like we are out of time, and I don't <laughs> want to be out of time. I want to keep talking. But Jim Embry, uh, Joy and Justice. Right? Joy and justice. Um, uh, Wonderful journey. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, dear. Have an awesome day and have a great day. Love you. Love, 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 love. Love and peace. All right. All right. Bye bye. Bye.